This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where, every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in our ongoing reading series, In the Enemy Camp, we sit down to discuss excerpts from The Fourth Political Theory by Alexander Dugan. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Rosa. I'm Rosa here, being being mind-controlled by George Soros. Go shoot Christians. Donald? Hey, it's Donald, and... master of the Eurasian Empire. <laughs> uh, and Lexi. Hey, it's Lexi, a special eschological version of the traditional society. So, you know, Russia and the Russian right wing has been a subject of a lot of discourse in the U.S. media and in the U.S. political scene for the last year or so. Um, But there's really been very little, of course, there's been very little investigation into like what Russian politics are actually like and what the Russian far right is actually like and what Putin's sort of ideological triangulation and what all that really is basically you know the democrats are trying to basically bring up a second red scare essentially you know the marxist marxism versus first is tragedy then as far certainly applies here and it was mostly you know pretty transparently a coping mechanism to deal with the fact that they lost the election and the fact that nobody's talking about it that much anymore is pretty makes all that even more transparent but i guess one way we can maybe look at like the Russian far right would be to look at one of its more prominent theorists, uh, Alexander Dugin. Uh, who is this guy, Donald? Alexander Dugin is rumored to have a line in on Putin, was formerly an advisor for him or like worked for him. But so he kind of has uh, international political significance in that regard. But his whole biography is pretty interesting. Um, he was part of this weird um, secret occult organization in the U because he's Russian. So he grew up in the USSR and he was a university student starting to be an academic who was also part of an underground occult organization that um, smuggled in texts from fascist writers like Julius Evola and studied um, basically um, different occult and fascist traditions that were obscure and Towards the end of the Soviet Union, and Gorbachev had um, his kind of loosening up, and this guy Dugin, he became the leader of his anti-Semitic party called the uh, Damyat Party. He also is traveling around the world now because now that like border controls in the Soviet Union are like, less restricted, he's been he's making connections with his movement called the New European Right, which is like a, a lot of intellectuals, most famously Elena Bonnois who are trying to create a new form of far-right politics that's not based in this kind of racialist, like like scientific racialism of the Nazis, but is actually kind of like, you know, trying to take elements of left-wing thought like Gramsci and then in combined with right-wing thought, such as uh, Julius Evola. He um, then develops kind of like, and this is in post, um, post-Soviet Russia now, and so he kind of... Um, tries to make an alliance between patriotic Russian communists 
and, or, you know, and, or ex-communist and um, this new kind of like traditionalist um, fascism that's very influenced by Julius Ebola as opposed to Hitler. Because obviously like a, a pro-Hitler form of uh, fascism wasn't going to like take, get big in Russia. But, you know, these kind of, um, there is a tradition in fascism of third positionism of national Bolshevism. Uh, for example, Francis Parker Yaki is probably most well known. And, you know, there is, have been attempts to kind of rid Marxism of its Jewish cosmopolitanism, as they would say, and make it into a nationalist ideology. And so Dugan can, you know, he, he was very influential in that. And in 1992, he was a former of the National Bolshevik Party with Edward Limanov, and he was a big ideological brain behind it. And um, he would eventually break with Limanov in um, 1997. And basically, after that, he starts think tanks, and he takes like kind of um, an approach similar to the neoliberals that he tries to kind of create like policy think tanks that like influence state policy. And so that's kind of um, that's what he tries to do with regards to Putin. I'd say is that he's really just like he's one of those po- well, he made a career out of becoming one of those policy wonks in the um, in Russia, but he represents a very far right anti liberal. And um, just anti-egalitarian traditionalist ideology, and kind of in the tradition of classical fascism, like you know, according to the classical fascist definition of palingenetic or like um, national, like ultra-nationalism, this kind of nationalism that aims for like a rebirth and a um, a kind of destruction of the decadent order and the rebirth of like a new order based on traditional values. Like that's definitely what Dugan stands for. But because of kind of the, the history of um, post-World War II fascism, he's kind of able to find reference points that don't make him a Hitlerist necessary. Yeah. I mean, so it's, to a certain extent, like, we don't really know, like, what his connections are to Putin at this point. Like, it's, I mean, I get the impression by the fact that, like, he's talking to people like Alex Jones and stuff like that, that it can't be, it, he just kind of seems like, I don't know almost like the Russian version of Richard Spencer, but maybe like a little more powerful in that, you know, he's basically trying to make a career off of being, you know, sort of an intellectual figure representative of, you know, like a certain political tendency that exists like in, in Russian politics or whatever. Would we say that's accurate or? Yeah, I would think that's probably the right kind of picture to paint. He's not like Rasputin sitting behind his <laughs> yeah. chair being like all right now we shall invade poland but like <laughs> yeah you know but he is like a major thinker in russian culture more i say more so than richard spencer is in the united states because you have to realize like after the soviet union fell like you just had like so many like the political climate was just so weird because you know marxism was off the table but like you kind of wanted to like take aspects of that it was still popular yeah, and, the conservatives the wanted time, to conserve the communist system. So you had like this yeah. weird like alliance of like yeah. the way the communist system kind of <laughs> became was this conservative social chauvinist nationalist system. And so, you know, you had a lot of what I'm, you know, we call like red patriots who were Russian patriots who are still really loyal to the KGB. And Dugan is actually um he's trying to find a new role for the um Soviet secret police. So he recommends that they, um, you know, they help purge culture of like Atlantean and Americanist like elements. So maybe we should talk about like his Atlantean versus Eurasianist vision. 
because that's kind of like um the core of his worldview. Um, basically, he has this weird kind of like geographic determinism almost, where like the landmass is like determinant of the way of the society, and so he has like Atlantean society is like the United States and the UK and actually up and coming China, who are like they're not. They're connected to the the ocean, the oceans, and so they're mercantile by nation. So because of um, you know, that nature of them, they're mercantile peoples who are like commercially minded, and so therefore developed this kind of individualism. That's you know very like in Putin. It's I mean sorry, I'm um, Dugan. <laughs> he sees his individualism as kind of like an enemy of like traditional society that's based on order and rank and organic hierarchies and you know national identities and so and it's um so basically he sees these he calls them atlantean powers like the united states and great britain as basically promoting capitalistic liberalism throughout the world at the expense of you know traditional values basically and he sees the eurasian powers as ba it's basically this idea that like the Russian nation is not enough. It's kind of like a, an anxiety of Russian nationalism because after the you know, Soviet Union, all of the Eastern Bloc was lost. So there's this feeling that the entire territorial like landmass of the so of Russia was kind of, you know, you know, contracted. And so what Eurasianism kind of wants to do is take all of that back plus more and kind of make Russia the leader of this kind of European empire, but eliminating the UK and the United States. So he's not like a pan-white empire type guy, but he's like a pan-Eurasian empire. It's like, it's like he sees land-based societies as because they have to like resort to like, you know, peasant agriculture, survive and not trade. They're more rooted and less individualistic, so it's very anti-cosmopolitan. It's you know because you know the Atlantic powers are cosmopolitan and commercial, and that's you know liberal and bad. All right, that's super volkish. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't get how he's able to include China in this because when you think of individualist societies, you don't really think of China per se. Like they're very yeah. cosmopolitan. They're not hyper individualists, they but they're not landlocked. Well, and the thing is, um, he says that the peasant socialism of China was actually like good and natural, like the Mao era, like what he calls peasant communism, was like the correct <sighs> way for them to go. But like ever since they've been modernizing more, becoming more market oriented, their culture is becoming more and more individualistic and more and more like therefore like sold out to the west so it's basically seeing like um you know the it's, it's basically eurasia united with the third world who they can kind of who like you know we obviously they don't want the third world to come and immigrate into eurasia but they see them as like potential allies against the atlantean power atlantean powers as they would call and so it's them versus um which obviously the West and the rest, it's the rest versus the West. Yeah, it's a neo-Warsaw pact. Yeah. And um except for them, like the 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 Warsaw Pact should include even more countries. <laughs> because he um Dugan wrote this book called um it was called Geopolitics or something like that. That was a uh, apparently um studied in the Russian military academy. 
So he became an a public intellectual who was very influential in a climate where far right ideas were able to prosper. Yeah, that's what makes me like really suspicious of this whole idea of like the fourth political theory, because yeah. he he really glosses over fascism in a lot of ways. Because I don't know if fascism was ever as coherent an ideology as like communism or liberalism. Like fascism has already always been highly syncretic, yes. and so the idea that he wants to like take these different ideas and synthesize them in a way, or for instance, when he's talking, gets to a section where he's talking about how. Um, there's like the three political theories. First was liberalism, then was communism, then was fascism. And he basically said that like communism co communism failed because it was wrong and fascism failed because it got defeated. So it's like, if you don't think fascism is wrong, you know, like, who, like what, what's, you know, what are you doing here? I mean, this fits, I think, very much in with like the American alt-right and that it's a way to revitalize or repackage like fascistic ideas but without necessarily the historical baggage of Nazism. Yeah, exactly. And I think it makes a, you know it makes it's a good argument against the whole idea of like Nazism was a product of the German people and their national traditions or whatever. But like that fascism is kind of like an imminent reaction to capitalism, and it's not only a reaction to the workers' movement, but it's kind of. It's it's against the kind of bourgeois like liberal leveling that happens under capitalism, where right. everyone kind of becomes like an equal subject under the law, and these whole kind of systems of patronage and tribute and rank are basically eroded in favor of you know just you know bourgeois versus proletariat, and they kind of they see that this is a society where everyone has their own rank or caste. A society where, yes, there's different classes, but everybody knows their place and is able to be happy in their place because they're part of, like, an organic whole. And yeah. so, you know, they really hate liberalism, or Dugan really hates liberalism because it, he sees it as alienating people from this organic whole that they're supposed to belong to. Yeah, I feel like some of that, he also, like, mentions Heidegger at one point. I feel like some of it comes from that, too, and you can see him, like, picking stuff from... From him, but he he cherry picks like a lot of different stuff from a lot of different things. He goes into Baudrillard. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, he says yeah. the subject of his theory is Dyson, or Dyson, whatever the, the sign. The sign, yeah. Like he's very Heideggerian. Like, yeah, he reads Hannah Arendt in the funniest way, in a way that I always imagined like would be possible to read Arendt, as and to be like. <laughs> You know, right-wing totalitarianism is one of the political forms of modernity. Well, yeah, uh, that's his critique of fascism. That's what he tries to do to distance himself from fascism is say at, that at, fascism the most was too modernist. Fascism is too modernist, but it becomes anti-modern because it loses, and communism becomes anti-modern because it loses, and because it's a like a reframed romantic impulse. Which, okay, so I think that's true about communism, but I don't know if that makes it not modern like well, it's it's anti-modern in that it wants to it's it's almost it wants to be more modern than modernity right like it wants to yeah take if if modernity is is modern capitalism then yes it like it's 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 orientation like communism's orientation is really more towards the future like that's where it sees like the fulfillment of mankind whereas the reactionary tendency is to look backward and try to return to some kind of more you know organic state of being or whatever 
Yes, right. but um and there is a glance backwards in Marxism in the sense that in trying to achieve communism, there is a sense of, you know, and this is where like Althusserians jump off on the critique of species being or whatever, is that or or humanism, is that like, you know, there is a sense that humanity lived in classless bands for a long time. And in trying to organize a mode of production classlessly in a you know technological society we're trying to return to an aspect of yes he says existence um, so there said, is that he has an article the metaphysics of national bolshevism i was looking at where he basically says that aspect of marxism is like the truth aspect that part of it is true it's the whole like romantic i mean positivist and humanist aspect of marxism that's wrong and I think so, I think that's so fascinating because I think a lot of liberals agree with that as well. And that his his edifice is like a very sophisticated critical theory liberal. I mean, part of when he's talking about the squeezing of the political, it sounds a lot to me like uh, Zizek and and his comments on ideology. It's very it's very bizarre. I felt really weird reading this. No, I mean, I just. You know, I saw a lot of terms that I associate with the, the ultra left, like real domination, informal domination. He talks about that shit. He, he quotes yeah, society it, of the spectacle. Okay, well, given where he is and where he's from, like it, like again, you, we need like a materialist reading of this guy's origins because he comes from a society where you know the conservative thing was to maintain like the Soviet state. And where Marxism was like the currency of the political discourse for a long time. And so, yeah, he is not going to have the same kind of allergy to examining like leftist thought and reading the same shit we've read as, you know, say somebody in in the United States. I mean, that's what, um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was, he, what, what was it, wasn't he a part of like um, the Nazbols or whatever, the National Bolsheviks? Yeah, yeah he I was mean, one of the literal National Bolshevik, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, okay, this is what I'm trying to say. It's disturbing that this guy is a methodologically kind of sound Marxist in some capacity, not like is, it, is he though? Because I mean, yeah. I, I haven't read. Yeah, like I, I think there, looking at this thing, he though, rejects like class struggle though. This thing seems like, all yeah, over the place. Is yeah, a, a lot, a lot of Marxists reject class struggle. And like, they're not Marxists. <laughs> like <laughs> they're, but the, in in the sense that there's some kind of body of theory that's doing some kind of methodological thing, which again. I really well, yeah. don't accept. I look. I don't accept that that's the heart of Marxism. And I think, I think Marxism is like an individualistic ideology as well. The like, predominant think, way of looking at this stuff is methodological. That it's based on some kind of special methodology. And I think that this work does a really good job of showing why that's so compatible with some kind of mysticism. Well, yeah, but you need more and, than just like a metho metho methodology, though. And Absolutely. One of, the, one of the problems of the is that they try to reduce Marxism to a methodology. Well, I, I completely That's agree, and but this is the reductio. This is like reductio ad absurdum for you know uh, what is orthodox Marxism. You know, like. Well, I think I think Dugan's experience with Marxism very much comes from studying Marxism in Soviet academies, and so it's inevitable that it's going to like influence the way he thinks. You know. Yes, and the. I think I didn't read the metaphysics of national Bolshevism, but in his chapter on the left, and he talks about national communism and the sort of de facto way that this nationalist impulse was channeled in, into communist like society building or whatever. Like 
But I think he was kind of right because some of those, like some of the things in communism and, so, and socialism, even the social democrats that won were these Lasallian distortions of Marxism that had specifically these sort of national, uh, room for these national myths. I always found that disturbing. And anyone that, you know, goes through the history of communism with an internationalist ethic should find it disturbing. But, you know, he's reading that as good news. Yeah, I, I think in general, there is sort of a tradition that he can really tap into in terms of like a long German, I guess, sort of Germanic tradition of like fetishizing a totalized state. Like it goes back to Hegel specifically in his fetishite, fetishization of the Prussian sort of military bureaucratic state. And it goes all the way through Schmidt and the Nazis and etc. And it's something that the Russian, it's a part of the quote unquote, I'm just going to say Russian national character to fetishize a totalized state also. It's something that has kept the nation together even through, through czarism and through the Soviet Union and up, up, until, up until now, uh, Putin's Russia and that sort of thing. So I guess there could be sort of a Eurasian tradition of a totalized, to mobilized state that can be tapped into for Dugan's ideology. And it makes sense that he would oppose it to Atlanteanism or I think more properly the Anglo, the Anglo-American side of the Enlightenment specifically because it is rooted in a heavy individualism like if you look back to Locke, yeah, it's, it's almost rooted. like the continental versus um, analytical beef taken to like a geopolitical yeah. level. <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah. that's a parallel discourse in uh, the anti-globalization stuff. That that's the other thing. This all resembles very much the anti-globalization stuff, like the 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 moment of the post-left and the kind of like collapse of the political spectrum into agreement and disagreement pro and anti yes he says it's you're either um with the um globalist or whatever. with the globalists either, yeah either, you're either yeah. at the periphery against them with everyone else or you're part of them i mean you could read queer theory from around that time and you have to deal with shit like welcome to the new world order you know and you really get like right-wing rhetoric in this like you know supposedly liberatory stuff it's like yeah. well he has a, really, he has a yeah. Of that era, I mean, like that was kind of like when he sort of you know came into politics. Was that period? This stuff, this um, stuff is just always in my head when I'm reading through what I increasingly just think of as post-left Marxism. You know what I mean? Like stuff where you know, oh, politics is over. You know, you can't do politics. Yeah. And, and I mean, there, I, I don't think they're wrong in a lot of ways. But of course, I'm reading this stuff with lizard brain, trying to think how can I, you know, restart the party. And um, because I don't want to accept that we're all just collapsed into, you know, pro politics and, you know, like, I, I don't know, like well, this, the, stuff would be, you're with the globalists or you're against the globalists. Well, yeah, but here's the like, stuff does like make that argument. So, like if you accept his premises that like communist politics is no longer viable because it was like just a failed attempt at modernity which was itself like and a failed like you know which itself wasn't truly modern because it had this special thing going for it <laughs> yeah well that's the thing like he defines like okay the period of modernity is over the period of post-modernity is begin but like he never really um 
explains like why that is. And like, here's my question: like, why does he think that there need? Why does there need to be a fourth political theory? Well, well yeah, like, it's obvious I, that his political theory is a third political theory. I think it's just kind of like a rhetorical thing he does to one yeah, distance himself well, from Hitler, and two to kind of like hype it up and go, "This is a totally new thing." You know. Yeah, yeah. I think it's mostly rhetoric, but he actually does explain why he refers yeah. to it as like a fourth political theory. Because basically, when liberalism had like basically one, it it collapsed in on itself. Like it it could only define itself in opposition to like communism or fascism. You know. And well, okay. So what he's saying is, but so now it liberalism, liberalism didn't emerge out of a vacuum. It emerged in opposition to feudalism. So what what's to say like that the fourth political theory wouldn't just be crushed under liberalism like the other three were? Like if liberalism really is like this totalizing thing that oh, that's the problem with like the situationist theory too of the spectacle. If it really is this all encompassing spectacle, then why would there ever be an opposition? To, you know society well i i would argue that like the, the society the society of the spectacle is really a cultural critique and only like observes like one aspect of capitalism but that's another conversation um like but within the within what the, within this guy's framework like if liberalism really has defeated all these other ideologies like what's to say like this fourth you know you know what i mean like i don't know it seems it seems really sketchy to me like this this i don't understand like why there's a need for a fourth political theory and what makes this really truly distinct from previous well, political there tendencies. is one way it historically makes sense and that is because there was a break between um revolutionary conservatives and fascism in interwar europe where people like oswald spangler and ernst jünger who became influences on fascism were still they weren't themselves fascists, but rather saw themselves as like radical traditionalists and who saw fascism as overly modernist and overly based on mass politics. And uh, Julius Evola, who Putin, I mean, that I keep saying Putin, uh, Dugan, not that their names are similar doesn't help, but the fact that you know, Dugan keeps raising Julius Evola, who was, you know, one of those figures who was seen as he sounds so as radical traditionalist, who is in fact to the right of fascism because fascism wasn't reactionary enough it wasn't enough of a return this traditional society this ideal of traditional society ultra right and mm. so you could say ultra that right. like dugan is critiquing fascism but he's critiquing it from the right yeah i think it's it feels very much like when you read post-left literature and you can tell that the authors don't actually want to end up right wing so they're trying to rhetorically reframe being left-wing and hope that all imminent responses to the global order will end up exactly where they are <laughs> and it this seems like a similar attempt this is like post-right you know we can't do fascist politics he does talk about a program which i think is interesting um he is a programmatist there's a lot of this that like makes me think of the way that you know, the sort of like neo-decadence kind of communizer theorists talk about the squeezing of the political. I think, like I was saying about Zizek before, like, I think the reason that he does this is because of the way liberalism has stained, apparently stained communism and fascism as totalitarianism and defined them out of political life. So something novel has to be afoot. And that's where part of the mysticism comes in. But honestly, I get that a lot from post-left 
and like communizer stuff as well. Yeah. There's a very I mean, uncomfortable family resemblance here. I mean, theory. Not, I mean, not to get off topic to a certain extent, but there is sort of an individualist tendency within post left in the post left, I guess, like, like a revitalization of true. Sterner. Is it Sterner or Steiner? I, I can't. Sterner. Sterner. Sternerite egoism within like the post left. So I'm wondering if there's like sort of a right wing equivalent if we're doing like this sort of weird horseshoe theory esque thing. Oh God, I'm cringing right now. Well, <laughs> it happened. That. It really does happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what would be that? I, I mean, Evola does have like this sort of individualistic warrior ethic that going on with his work, I guess, to a certain extent. Like they are uber midget, uber midges, and warrior cast or whatever. I feel like I don't know. I feel like Heidegger's ultimate existentialist project has more individualism than maybe one would want to like i don't know a lot of heideggerians would want to press on yeah like especially when paired with nietzsche which you know this smacks of nietzsche even though he doesn't really go into it and he puts it all on heraclitus i mean not um he puts it all on heidegger and so yeah i don't know you can't really ha have that much nietzsche in there while shitting on individualism all the time <laughs> Yeah, but it's not an it's Sorry. not an Anglo individualism. It's not an Anglo American individualism that's rooted in some kind of materialistic sort of crude empiricist analysis of reality. It's it's a Germanic and Eurasian yeah. individualism that's rooted in the experiences and pain of the German and Eurasian man. You know what? Like looking at his critique of, of methodology it's exactly what marxists say about you know empiricism and i'm not saying that empiricism doesn't have his flaws but you know when when it's coming from dugan i just feel i don't even have that pull that i do with some marxists where i kind of want to agree with them I just feel very kind of smug <laughs> what does i don't know one thing i i only looked at the the one thing but like what does what does he want? That's what I don't really get a clear sense. I mean, he wants to get rid of liberalism like that. You know, he wants to oppose globalism like that much is clear, but I didn't really get a clear sense of like what he wants something new too. But like, what does he see? What does he see in like communism and fascism? That's like worth preserving a totally mobilized state. It's, it's the totalitarianism of both, of both uh, Bolshevism. Well, supposedly Bolshevism and, and fascism both in its Italian and national socialist varieties that he sees as redeeming. In particular, the structuralists. Yeah, it's holistic and anti-capitalist. And that capitalism is bad because it encourages, it encourages mercantilistic individualism. Hmm. Yeah, so he really is just like a classical fascist. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, basically, this is just third positionism, but with different rhetoric. It's slightly smarter than, let's say, um, your average, uh, your average stormfronter, or whatever sort of Hitlerist bullshit. But um, 
it, it's still on par in terms of like actual content. Do you want to listen to uh, listen to one Alex Jones? We can talk about it. Oh yeah, because sure, his his public statements are have quite a different character than his like reserved kind of tone here. Even though yeah. he says some crank crazy shit, it's not quite the chestnuts that he'll be roasting out on the Alex Jones show. Okay, let's see if this works. Hang on. And if you want, if you want me to pause and talk about something, just yeah, let me know. Make sure to drop an air horn if you can. Uh, I did. I didn't get an air horn sound effect yet. You're breaking my heart, Jake. I'm working on it. Jesus. Okay, here we go. Okay. I hate Russia so much, and why do they hate Christians so much? Um, uh, I I think that there is only one reason because they uh, really hate uh, Russians because Russians are more Christian uh, than uh, other uh, Western peoples because we have conserved instead of all repressions of uh, Bolshevik, materialist, atheist revolution, we have conserved our faith inside of us. And uh, precisely we are hated so much because we are uh, still uh, believing in Christ. We, we are still Christians and they hate Christianity precisely because they, uh, they hate Christ. Uh, and there is only one entity in the, in the world, in the cosmos, in the, in, the, uh, in the being that really hates Christ. That is Antichrist. That is devil. So I Let's talk about the Antichrist world system with Alexander Dugan straight ahead and jump in anytime you want, Owen. You could hear him thinking to himself, don't say Dasein, don't say Dasein, don't say Dasein. Uh, uh, being. Yeah, it's funny. I, I mean, you know, he obviously, my his, his English is better than my Russian, but he really does want to sound like uh, someone doing a character. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, this is probably going to piss some people off, but Slavs basically sound drunk when they try to speak English. Like they constantly just sound drunk. Not going to lie. Like, that's probably really horrible to say, and I apologize to all our uh, Slavic viewers, if you exist, uh, but... Hey. I, no, you're right, hey. you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Hey, you take that back. I mean, at least he can speak a second language, I can't even do that, so credit to him. I just fucked up my Duolingo streak, seriously. Yeah. Yeah, so I know it, it's it's interesting, like c contrasting, because I was listening to about Alex Jones, and like, there's this weird contrast between you know the sort of like more erudite stuff that is written, and then him just going on Alex Jones and Alex being like, uh, "So you believe that you know they they hate our freedoms?" And, they, and he's like, "Oh yes, Alex, I believe." You know, it's like it's he just basically <laughs> Alex, like Alex just leads him through this interview, and he basically just agrees with everything Alex Jones says, and like maybe adds like a small like. Thing to it and it's i don't know it that just gave me like the immediate impression that this dude is just kind of like a con man like trying to like make a career for himself to a certain extent at least when he presents himself to the english-speaking world i don't know he said I he mean, wasn't like Rasputin. and he kind of seems a little bit like Rasputin. yeah i mean it's consistent with this facebook content let me tell you that much um he had some wonderful Ooh. comments about the recent shooting in Las Vegas. Let me hot tell you, hot take, it, hot take, hot take. George Soros is using MK Ultra mind control bullshit to get the shooter to kill white Christians, to kill not white Christians, Christians, American Christians, and this is just globalists waging war against us, 
against good Americans. So I feel and, like yeah, I feel like he's getting, he's got to be getting that straight from Alex Jones. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's, like he's not he, getting that from critical theory departments or whatever. No, he he, uh, he knows he <laughs> knows know. his audience. The thing is, is that critical theory does hate universalism. It loves its Dasein. It really wants there to be just a plurality of ontologies, man. Yeah, but they're not obsessed with George Soros, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Uh, like, like, I don't know academia that well, so I could be wrong. I'm I'm sorry to echo a right wing talking point, but yeah, there's because there's just methodological anarchy. Like, there's serious, like you know. I don't know, standards decline. And yeah, sometimes that stuff borders on conspiracy theory. No, I believe it. I mean, but I mean, George, because like George Soros is such like a specific like Breitbart talking point. And it has been for a long time. Like I, yeah. I find it hard to believe that like universities, like someone would be able to go, like going there and talking about chemtrails. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would be funny if someone were able to like combine like sort of critical theory shit with like conspiracy talk. You know, like I would I would like to see some cultural cultural analysis of like media that's like, oh, yeah, this is culture, industry, Jewish, mechanized MK Ultra mind control. That's what we're dealing with, folks. Well, the problem is critical theory is Jewish mind control. It is. Okay. Using Jewish mind control against itself. Imminent critique. Flipping it for the goys. <laughs> Cut that out. Cut that. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I think it's funny. That oh, was good. Good. The entire audience is Jewish. We approve. <laughs> okay. Um, should I play another clip? Hit me. Uh, of the year 30s when they accused the people without any uh, inquiry on their what they re- really did or or thought so that is a kind of beginning and the middle uh, time of soviet um, soviet period uh, soviet history uh, exactly uh, we're now in the uh, 100 years of october revolution and now the same situation the same thing is repeating in the united states Exactly the same, the same, exactly the same uh, weapon. Because uh, now, for example, Antifa uh, has no, no uh, doesn't want to speak with opponents. They uh, demonize uh, what uh, their opponents, and they try to aggress them. They try to uh, to hit them. They have no... And, for and example, they say they, they want power. They say they want to shut us up, put us in prison and kill us. They say they're following a Bolshevik slash Maoist takeover. The only thing new is they like Mao's takeover better than the Bolshevik takeover. That, so uh, n- now, uh, if you uh, consider liberalism, he uh, became uh, the totalitarian he was a kind of ideology of liberty but today he has changed in totalitarian ideology that uh, proposed to us to not to be liberated but to be liberal and we have no choice we are obliged to be liberal wow there's just a significant like can you imagine what's going on in dugan's head whenever alex jones talks about marxism like yeah antifa they openly love mao like Dugan must be like, okay, buddy. Well, I mean, he's not a hundred percent wrong there. I mean, there definitely is like an anarcho-Maoist current. Like, yeah, but they, they don't stuff. openly love Mao; they secretly love Mao. 
That's the difference. Yeah. Well, and I mean, he is right though that like a lot of contemporary leftist politics is more Maoist than Bolshevik. I mean, he actually, I mean, Alex actually makes a pretty good point there. You know, I mean, because I wish, I wish, like, I wish he was right. Like, I wish we were plotting with the Bolshevik takeover, Bolshevik takeover in the United States right now. And if we had to get the money from George Soros to do it, like, I wouldn't be opposed to that either. But it's just not reality. Dugan thinks that um, because Russia went through communism, they are kind of inculcated from the values of liberalism. And because they have the strong tradition that they had to defend against, you know, the evils of Judeo-Bolshevism, but the Russian people have become, you know, strong traditional people that are untainted by liberalism almost. And so because of that, he thinks that Russia needs to basically be the vanguard of this Eurasian empire, where Russia needs to become an empire again. That's what Dugan wants. He wants yeah. basically, he has like, there's like three different axes. There's the your um, Atlantean Eurasian axis against um, the United States and Britain, where he wants to um, weaken their power through subversion and basically limit U.S. power to its own shores. And then he sees the Tehran-Russia access where he kind of wants to make peace with Islam and unite with Islam against the, um, you know, against the Atlantean modernist. And then he has um, the European front where um, he wants to go, like, you know, he wants to, I think he has, like, his ideas probably change all the time about this crazy stuff. But um, he talked maybe, I think, about, like, bringing back the Germanic Empire for parts of Europe. <laughs> He has his really crazy, like, reactionary ideas. Yeah, he has a quote towards the end of, what, chapter two? Something along the lines of, it's clear that Russia has to go another way, its own way. But just here, there is a question. To diverge from the logic of post-modernity in one separately taken country, quote, cannot easily succeed. The Soviet model collapsed. After that, the ideological situation changed irreversibly, as did the strategic balance of power. Yeah, so basically, it's not going to be enough to try, you know, national Bolshevism in one country. That's the implication there. That's an expansionist implication. Yeah, which that's how it always comes down. Like, there's this weird idea that they can create like this international of different nationalisms. Right, um, which that is genuinely like a Stalinist idea. If you've ever seen some of the old, like, God, even some of like the old, like, UN style, like, internationalism, where everyone's holding hands around the world and they all have their different national flags, like, that generally, genuinely does come from, like, a Stalinist sort of genealogy. Like, um, but it's, uh, there was also, like, fascist internationalism, weird enough, where, like, that's you true. Know, you had, you had, um, you know, the German American bond and stuff like the Boond or whatever and some stuff like that. And you had like it Italian fascist and American neighbor, you know, in neighborhoods in America who were like, you know, yeah, but that's still, but stuff. that still has like an ethnic. Yeah, access. exactly. It, 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 that's it's, different. It, that's the thing is that fascism has to be like rooted in that ethnic, like religious. Well, but this racial. is more, this is more like Jay Sakai's concerns about like different kinds of fashion well, i was gonna say how this that stuff break bread with each other 
You know what I mean? Like, okay, look, Islamic world, you know, you can have your kind of fascism and, you know, your Asian, you know, Russian world, we're going to have our kind of fascism and we're going to be cool with each other in a kind of like, you yeah. know, nation of Islam, Nazi party kind of way. Well, that's kind of what the alt-right is all about too. Like um, traditionalist workers parties are all about, the workers party and Richard Spencer are all about like supporting um, Assad and supporting Hezbollah, you know. They see yeah. like anyone. They basically see us. Anyone who's an enemy of global liberalism is your friend. Like because liberalism has destroyed communism and destroyed fascism, and has become totalitarian because there's nothing to keep it in check. And because of that, you either are against it completely, or you know you're not, and you're part of it. And that means siding with everybody. Basically, a united front of the right. I mean, you could see how he's abstracted so much from left-wing theory. Like, all the concerning things that I'm, I see in left-wing theory, this dude has latched on to. Like, this, you know, I can't get over how much of the, quote, Marxist, quote, political, uh, methodological thing he has going, where, where he's totally excised it of the communist political content. Like, he's turned the communist urge itself into the national sturge. Should I, should I play some more of the show, or...? Yeah, do it. If we are not liberal, they uh, will call us Nazis, or they are call us uh, uh, reactionary fascists. And that is enough to kill us, to marginalize us, to, to aggress us, because we are not uh, human. And let's anymore. talk about how they did it. They, they only had Moscow for the first year, right? Intimidated the military to turn their guns in. Then the local cities, they didn't start the Red Terror. <laughs> For four or five years and now they're trying the same thing with loretta lynch she said they're gonna have strong cities and have cities that agree to go under justice department control and literally they then install local communist leaders we sent teams in that spied on them i mean this is they literally believe they're executing the second Bolshevik revolution and here we are talking to a russian historian very respected he says yes this is happening but again okay i'm pretty sure he didn't sign off on any of that but uh anyway yes this Russians is happening we, the globalists, infected them with this to stall Russia from their renaissance, just as they've been stalling us now. Uh, Alexander, please continue. <laughs> like, again, I'm, like, after reading his whole thing about the communist urge and that, like, you know, sublated eschatology of national revitalization into communism and his whole, like, national bolshevik like russian thing then alex jones is like yes communism part of the globalist conspiracy like <laughs> yeah no i mean the only thing i can think that maybe doesn't like feed into like my charlatan theory is that he maybe just his english isn't so good so he literally doesn't understand half what alex is talking about and he's just kind of like waiting he, he just like he's just sitting there waiting for him to stop talking so he can just start saying whatever he was going to say i don't know yeah, because yeah, I think that's a big factor in it. He's just it is like be. this crazy Americans just ranting. I'm going to get on here and just try to say like, you know, my my crazy political stuff is you know simply as possible. All right, good thing Alex Jones is there to translate it into <laughs> communism is globalism ease. Yeah, because you know Dugan basically says that communism or Bolshevism at least was just Russian nationalism. And that Russian nationalism has this messianic, eschatological aspect to it, you know. And so he sees um, part of that universal Russian angelic spirit in communism. He's got a weird relationship with universality. Like, he thinks it's natural. But also, 
<laughs> he wants to preserve the design. He also has a weird view about relativism. He wants to. He hates yeah. postmodernism, but he is a relativist who thinks that every nation and people have their own special truth. Yeah, it just seems Rude. to me, and again, like just reading this one piece. Um, my initial impression was that this dude is basically just like a Russian nationalist and he's just kind of pulling whatever he can find to help like bolster the argument for like building a strong uh, geopolitically muscular Russian yeah. state. He argues like of our multipolar world. He says today we live in a unipolar world where the U.S. basically runs the world. But like he thinks that like Russia needs to become one of those poles of power and that it needs to become a world power. And in its actual political writings, he doesn't really argue for expansionism directly, but instead he argues for subverting other nations and trying to subvert liberalism and basically using Russia's oil supply to kind of like force like putting the other nations under economic pressure to follow Russia. Now, this is going to be a little, um, well, I know you didn't read his chapter on gender, but I mean, he was really pulling from a lot of different places here. I mean, he kind of he accepts like a sex gender distinction that's kind of you know i don't know it seems a little more i don't know what to say like i agree with it more than i agree with some of the like radical stuff that's trying to just staple them together but then i you know i don't know it depend radical depends on what you think but then like he will very casually drop some like you know some of his transphobic conclusions or something but he's basing them on this strange this strange vacillation. First he says, you know, the subject of the fourth political theory is a non-adult male. And then he starts going over the ways that like liberalism and fascism have this kind of patriarchal subject that the fourth political theory wants to get away with, get away from entirely. And that Marxism, you know, there's, a, we, there's actually a lot to learn from Marxism. And he wants to get to this like... Uh, let's see. Design somehow can be sexualized, but that sex which it has can't be neither man's nor female in gender sense. Perhaps it makes sense to speak about androgen? The fourth political theory may be addressed to the androgynous being, and its gender is andro androgynate? <laughs> Maybe, but only if to not project on the androgynous, obviously split models of sexes as a halves. Sex, according to Plato, is that is that is follows unity division this is a weird translation but i mean it just this seems just very butler-esque like it's you know it's kind of it's and then then later on he'll say stuff like this okay what is the postmodern gender it is a maximization of liberal man the archetype which applies to all of its ant antithesis and then uh hence the idea that uh, okay, uh, proletarians are the bourgeoisie who have not grown rich yet. Black are not are the non-modernized white. Women are not fully liberated men. Um, the extension of the archetype becomes meaningless, and like the re-extension of gender sexual models can lead to that hyper model will explode like rotting fungus, and a gender archetype will fail. Now we are in the moment um, of a re-extension and a final break of gender stages of this break are feminism, homosexuality, sex change operations. Like this guy is like, <laughs> obviously he doesn't feel good about that and stuff, but he then just goes on to talk about the desiring machine and this like androgynous subject. And he starts to talk about Donna Haraway and Michelle Foucault and Gilles Deleuze. 
It's just or Giles to lose. I'm not even sure his name is. Anyway, it's fucking weird. Like he really does pick up on a lot of stuff. Like and I don't know. He basically takes Dasein in this queer theory direction, which personally, when I'm reading Heidegger and he's talking about the they, <laughs> I mean, they is my pronoun. Like I always had a different read of it, but he's, I don't know, takes it in this really, it's not so much weird as it is dissonant with his seems dissonant with his politics well, yeah, because most fascism is like a cult of masculinity you know the way of men is that one popular neo-fascist book is you know the whole you know modern fact especially the alt-right is very associated with the mra and the whole red pill concept and it's very uh, masculinist well um, but he, phenomena. He, yeah he thinks that a lot of the problem with you know liberal like liberal gender is that it just extends the man category and tries to make everyone men. And then, well, that's, I think that's kind of like this, um, that where him and post-structuralism kind of unite is emphasizing right. difference over universality. And, and then so, you know, when, when, like when he talks about the Russians, it, it is. And then when he, then he says this conservative forces can stand up for this archetype of man, demand to return the man, this reasonable wealthy white person, but thereby they only continue try to continue to modern. This position seems hopeless. Here against, here again, the fourth political theory, in our opinion, goes forward. Uh, we suggest to take a step towards gender that belongs to the sign without notorious representations that we will receive, going beyond the limits of gender which we know. We get to the domain of uncertainty, androgyny, sex of angels. He he thinks that a conservative appeal to masculinity will only end up reinforcing the modern. Like that is. Some next level shit. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's truly bizarre to read this guy, especially the way he foams at the mouth in public. Because he's obviously like, you know, lamenting the erosion of traditional gender norms. But he right. thinks that if we just, um, maybe his argument is that if we just try to um, affirm masculinity, it will just be within the paradigm that gender is understood so it could only act to... um reinforce how masculinity is understood by that paradigm or whatever i mean that is so close to the way that you know i think uh like, a, a good understanding of like a critique of you know trying to be the good man is in a in a society like this like yeah I, exactly. and it's so rarely do i see people articulate something like that like and it's kind of it really kind of freaks me out again in in this critical theory way He's it's like kind of also an anti-integrationist perspective. He's saying that like liberal integrationism or communist integrationism even is just like you don't get it's just you absorbing into like the bland homogenous like um nihilism of this multicultural society where your identity doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. Uh, on the whole, in the gender policy of communists, we see a new tendency. They recognize the gender status quo and offer to change it under the banner of the matter. And he means like the material body. Uh, this means a transgression of bourgeois man in downward direction and appeal to the material substance, um, to the undifferentiated realm of the work, where there is no qualitative difference between the good cooking woman, the sailor and the masculine hero. Marxists offer even lower down where nothing is left of gender hierarchies and strategies. Thus, in the most extreme Marxist idea, have a desire to destroy the bourgeois archetype. And uh, there's a footnote 
uh, Lenin once said, under socialism, any good cooking woman could with the same ease rule the state. Yeah, I mean, so he's, he's obviously not a fan of communist gender politics. Yeah, he's not a fan of communist gender politics. He's but not a he fan likes, of communism at all. What, but the thing is, he's that he ends up praising the weird radical rethinking that Marxists end up doing as being like a superior fourth positionist like perspective from the perspective yeah, of but that was really just like kind of like the thermidor and sexual relations because of how Stalin kind of brought back a lot of the conservatism that was you know destroyed on yep. the October years that's well yeah that's the other thing that he uh that's where i cut off is when he starts talking about uh uh in reality however is different in stalin's russia the man's archetype the rational domineering man despite attempts to recreate gender marxist equality right after the revolution in 1917 prevailed um but the idea of overcoming of man through the reference to, to the body uh to the desiring machine is characteristic for marxism so even though the whole reality of marxism was totally Holy. patriarchal even though the whole reality of Marxism was totally patriarchal, it's still this uh, desiring machine characteristic to Marxism that he thinks is like interesting in a gender politics kind of way. This was a funny quote that I read by him that reminded me of kind of value form critique. He says, the dictatorship of ideas, there's a place by the dictatorship of things, login passwords and barcodes. New holes are appearing in the fabric of postmodern reality. Just that whole the whole idea by the dictatorship of things, you know, the whole idea that we're kind of dominated by. That's a very Marxian phrase. Where he talks about like liberalism as like an ideological force made material reality. It's so I think very... kind of like what he's doing is he's trying to take some of the materialist critical theory of Marx to critique capitalism, but to critique liberalism as a whole. Right. In, in the name of traditionalism. And so he would be like, you know, he, you probably see 1789 as when the world went wrong. Yeah, but he's using like literally the critique that like Marxists built up of like post Fordism and neoliberalism. Um, like a whole, and he's clearly read like quite a quite a bit of this stuff. Yeah, like, I mean, it's it's just sort of disturbing to me because in addition to this weird crank fascist shit. He's also just like methodologically an able, like, you know, a wielder of critical theory. And well, if, and he if, has no politics that I want to take part of. And it just shows you how divorced the method is from the politics. I mean, honestly, though, if being around left book for years has taught you anything, it's that like reading Marx doesn't automatically like make you not an idiot or make you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> radical or revolutionary or anything like you can, oh, like, you can read this stuff and take all kinds of crazy shit from it. You know, you could take this, you could read this stuff and assume that everything would be fine if like money was just edible or if it just dissolved on its own so there wouldn't be inflation or or everything would be fine if we just return to the gold standard. <laughs> You know, I mean, like you take all sorts of crazy shit. Everything would be fine if we just had co-ops. Like you can all, you can read this shit and still think a lot of stupid shit. Yeah, you know? those are those are respected economists, Jake. <laughs> yeah, really. Res yeah. yeah I why? Mean, why? Uh, it's obvious that Dugan isn't just an idiot. He's obviously studied a lot of political theory, a lot of cultural theory, a lot of history. I would say he is obtuse because he's basically put it all in the service of like an extremely narrow and provincial. Yeah, thing. exactly. He's just using yeah. it all to justify Russian nationalism. Totally. Like says, it's not just Russian nationalism, he says, because he says Russian nationalism is um, not a thing. Russia is not a nation, it's an empire. And so, you know, it's, it's ultra nationalism.
which I mean, you know, I, if you, if that's just something you're doing to make a career, you know, that's nice work if you can get it. But I mean, this guy, prob this guy, looking at his chapter on the left, definitely has Hart and Negri in his mind when he's talking about Empire. That's what. Mm. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, like yeah. the whole second half of that chapter on the left is about Hart and Negri and like a reading of Empire. I was gonna say, um, one guy that um reminds me of this guy who's American is Keith Preston, who's an ex-anarchist, who um basically took a right-wing turn. And he has this whole idea of pan-secessionism, where it's like there's America, the empire, and then there's just the secession from the empire. And so what we need to do is basically just have like a left-right united movement to secede from United States. And I feel like that's almost kind of what Dugan is arguing for, is just like a left-right alliance against the empire. Okay, I can't even remember what I was going to go with, but it was like some earlier writer that basically like had the same view views but it it was imperium the name of the book was imperium oh, or Francis something like Parker that Yaki. yeah you brought him up you brought him yeah, up yeah. earlier yeah he had the same idea that like basically the soviet union after stalin had cleansed the ussr of its jewish influence you know and so they were good russian nationalists now and so now the ussr was supported against the cosmopolitan usa that wanted to spread McDonald's to every country in the world. And so, in a way, like, they thought that Stalinism had transformed communism into a kind of hawkish nationalism. And so, therefore, like, the USA were the true bad guys in the Cold War. Yeah. I mean, there is something kind of really stupid about this sort of vulgar, romantic anti-capitalism that's deeply reactionary and just wrong. Like... The worst part about capitalism is not McDonald's. It's not Coca-Cola. It's the brutality of the way it treats working people and that sort of thing. It's the exploitation that comes from capitalism, not yeah. all the useless cultural baggage or the oh, fact but it, but that we have brands. Oh, but it made art bad. Oh, yeah, well, that's, but the situation's critique is uh, like, well, let's say capitalism actually does provide everyone with a good living, but this living is just so meaningless and pointless because all it is just, all we do is consume and et cetera. And so you can see where like, that kind of situationist critique of capitalism can come into play here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I would have to relate it back to like uh, Luke Hodge's critique at the Frankfurt School, basically that he he argued that they had like a sort of a left a left wing aesthetics and right wing ethics. I believe if if correct me if I'm wrong or I haven't heard that quote before, but it makes sense because like no, it no, cool. it's like it's kind of conservative. It's like like. It is like a romanticism, a general romanticism that that's like deeply involved in this sort of romantic critique of capitalism that is ultimately reactionary. Yeah, it does I think not that's focus on because it shows yeah, it, how like a reactionary romantic critique of capitalism is basically just affirming like traditional hierarchies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not actually basically. subversive. Like it, it thinks that it's subversive because it's going against liberalism, but it's it's just upholding you know, like family and nation and 
Well, it, it is it general. is the imminent suggestion in a society where you can't do like political thinking because there's no more theory, there's no more ideology. You can't do that stuff anymore. So you have what's there or you have some feeling of opposition to what's there and you have a tradition of dead things that have existed and stuff to come that hasn't existed yet. The thing that suggests itself immediately is not some future thing. The thing that suggests itself immediately is, oh, well, we lost something. Let's put it back. The thing is, so many people are so removed from that memory of a pre-capitalist past where we don't actually remember living in it. Mm. A lot of us, we have no experience of it. And so, therefore, that pre-capitalist past is just an ideal as kind of um, drawn yes. Absolutely. So become even more mythological and more romanticized and completely removed from what that society was actually like. Well, that's exactly what Dugan is relying on. That's his mythos. That's his Sorelian myth. Yeah. Well, even even with social democracy, like that's a that's a that's a cap. Even that's romanticized by both the left and the right, really. Like. The European right simply wants, like, militarized social democracy, a return to sort of totalized state, totalized, mobilized state. And much of the left, unfortunately, has also a romanticized view of social democracy, where the only thing that kept it from working was this conspiracy of neoliberals who destroyed it through think tanks and that sort of thing it's like yeah that's the thing that makes dugan actually kind of perceptive is he's talking about these lasallian rousseauian populist you know quote marxist quote traditions that when most people are thinking of socialism communism marxism they think we're talking about this right that's yeah that's what that's what gets you because you know we the things that he specifically likes in the historical communist movement are the, are the things that are the reason we think it failed and right yes that's funny like all the things he likes about it are things that we think are bad yeah that's that's why i feel okay reading it and agreeing with a lot of some of like, of like that theoretical framework he builds up I mean, because he's like, so clear about the things that he hates the things i like i mean it's <laughs> like reading carl schmidt and agreeing with his critique of liberalism like I don't see, you know, it's obviously true for many of his critiques of liberalism, despite the horrible political conclusions he comes up with. And yeah. say whatever else you want about this, it, it doesn't contain like a five-section digression on Trayvon Martin. So, I Oh, think God, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, this guy, I think he's smarter than Nick Land. This guy makes, sure. you know... Nick Land is like a vulgar economist compared to this guy. Yeah. yeah no. Nick, Nick Land wants to be Dugan. Yeah, yeah. no... It, it's like, yeah, Dugan is actually like I. I think this is generally conser- sort of revolutionary conservatives and fascists, and well, some fascist thinkers, some, not all of them, of course. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like um, I wouldn't say Sorel is all that perceptive in terms of like his body of thought or whatever, but. That's a whole nother story, but in terms of like, to say American Anglo liberal, 
Anglo conservative, quote unquote, conservatives, I, I think they are more intelligent and more perceptive. Like maybe that's giving them too much credit, but they, they understand that conflict is a general part of society that, that, that can't simply be controlled by a sort of liberal fucking pluralistic state. Yeah, can't exactly. Be they, don't have, by that. they don't have delusions that the class antagonism can be contained within a civil society based on, you know, liberal discourse. Like, I mean, yeah. both the, the far right and the far left realize that politics in the end comes down to a fight. And that's, you know, the uncomfortable truth that liberalism is always trying to kind of hide, I think. that That's why we always get grouped with them. Really, they're the only worthy opponents to us in a weird way. Like, the liberals are just, like, either you can manipulate them or you can just get rid of them. They're not really worth sort of debating. Much of their ideology is empty. Well, the oh, fascists... yeah, they have, no, they have no ethics other than distance from the government and freedom and, from the and government. And it's become, it's become worse over time. They've become so... At one point, they acknowledge class as a thing and that sort of thing. But at this point, it's like it's devolved to the point where they can't even like have a coherent politic, a politic, they, a politic or any kind of class acknowledgement of class relations or that sort of thing. It's just like. But the, <sighs> the weird problematic truth that this gets at that I've been frustrated with with the discussion around anti-fascism is that the hard right is really not the main enemy is or they're not the ones in power it is the liberals that are in power like they really run shit and I know not liberals in the American sense necessarily but like that's yeah, who still right. runs shit you run shit like Donald Trump at the end of the day I mean he's you know blustering idiot that flirts with you know extra liberal politics but at the end of the day policy you know yeah but at the end know. that's just like there's we can't have like a red brown alliance no yeah, no, ab no absolutely, no, absolutely I was, not absolutely I was not, not like I was, these people no. are, are don't, enemies don't, more don't. so than liberals because they actually have a glee about exterminating communism and removing communism from the face of yeah. history now, now yeah. look these people aren't to be trusted or to be blocked with but they're not in power like if yeah, like yeah, we, we, sh Honestly, we should we should be looking at them and studying them and you know honestly the way things are going i, I think eventually they will gain some kind of power back yeah, I, I can see the alt-right becoming more palatable as a mass politic in time but i don't know that's a different sure. argument yeah, but um the, sure but say, in like, general this, i can i can see like tankies reading this and actually agreeing with it a lot well because, that's because that's what they love about communism and yeah, finally it's, someone's it's, gonna say it it says basically like you know communism is just what's great about communism what's great about it is anti-imperialist nationalism and national self-determination Oh and, yeah, that's exactly what I love about communism. Gee, I never thought about it like that before. So, yeah. so clearly, so that way, like this guy kind of takes like all of that stuff from um, the communist um, experience, but removes all of the class egalitarianism and women's liberation aspects. But he focuses on like the anti-imperialists because like he's always ranking against American imperialism and American domination. And so much of the left strategy is the side who, whoever is against American domination, 
Hence why you have leftists, you know, working with Iran and Russia. And so his ideology is, you know, it's, I can see it making a seductive case for like, you know, tankies into, you know, becoming far rightists. Well, there, as as Dugan points out, they're already so close to national Bolshevism anyway. They're basically unconscious national communists. Yeah, and I think like, that's how he was able to get his ideology to be somewhat large in yeah. the post-Soviet era, is because so much yeah. of the old communists basically just were just you know they were just yeah. nationalists. And I they mean, were if they you, were if literally you, like crypto fascists. I feel like if you look it's an organic, the, like the, the modern. Uh, the modern Russian Communist Party is basically national Bolshevik when you look yeah. at it. Like they're hyper patriotic, they're extremely homophobic. That's her thing. It's it's all in line with this sort of like sort of third positionist kind of nationalism that Dugan represents. I guess the problem is that you know one doesn't want to just blur the lines with quote totalitarianism quote. But at the end of the day, Stalinism really does generate the kind of counter-revolution that fascism seems to be. <laughs> and I don't like to blur those categories, but they, the hard right sees it, and they like it, <laughs> and they can use it to recruit old Stalinists. Like, that, I mean, that speaks to something. I think that, in, in a sense, it does make comparisons between Stalinism and fascism more palatable, but I feel like if you make that comparison, you also have to compare liberalism and throw that in there. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. but but it's you know both of these have elements of like a revolt against you know liberal enlightenment, one side or the other. Against the modern world. <laughs> yeah, against some aspect of the modern world, against either you know what was supposedly the humanist economy or what was supposedly you know the humanist political order. Well, like, their idea of society before modernity is that, you know, everybody has a place in the caste hierarchy, and that place is given meaning by a greater religious, traditionalist, historical cosmology passed down by generation. So even if you're, like, a lower-ranking person, like, your life is still, like, supposedly meaningful and important because of, you know, it has a certain place within the greater... That's why religion is so necessary for, you know, these kind of layered hierarchy societies. It's a conception of, quote, positive freedom, quote, but without, you know, individual, quote, bourgeois liberty. I was going to say, like, I think it's interesting that um, he was connected with Putin because, you know, the whole fear of, um, the, um, of uh, you know, the security apparatus in the U.S. is that Russia is going to start, like, invading the world. And so we have to contain Russia, you know, and keep it from uh, expanding territorial and keep it some international like power from subverting. And there's this whole fear that Russia like subverted our elections. And like, that's exactly what like uh, Dugan is talking about doing in this stuff. Like he believes in like using subversion of democracy to kind of like weaken the will of the West. And so eventually the Eurasian empire will take over. And I feel like at the same time, like, there is this weird attempt to like make Putin look like Hitler and a lot of like, you know, pro imperialist anti-Russian propaganda. I feel like could really like, get, Oh, well, look at this guy, Dugan, you know, he influences Putin. So Putin is, it must be Hitler, you know? Yeah, no, there, um, that's actually what Glenn Beck is worried about. Yeah. Like he actually, like, yeah, I think he's, he had like a big thing on Dugan. I could, I could play some of it if you want. Please. Yeah. Yeah. 
I can I can totally see that because so much of the fear around Trump is that there's this international far right conspiracy theory led by Russia that's behind it and that's working with Trump. And the thing is, like, there is an international far right like think tank movement and also a popular movement that is like you know these far rightists from different nations are you know they do keep in contact with each other even like in the united states for example that guy matt heimbach of traditionalist workers party he like goes and visits the golden dawn and visits the hungarian fascist party and they exchange strategy and stuff some of the most influential men in russia the russian foreign minister the second chairman of the state, the United Russia party chief ideologist, and of course, President Vladimir Putin. Not only advising the Kremlin, but in 2008, Dugan became the head of the Department of Sociology of International Relations at Moscow State University. My God. He's been pushing <laughs> his ideology to Moscow's intellectual elite and young minds ever since. I mean, that this really is, is one kind of the most dangerous. <laughs> like, he has, like, had a, his strategy is kind of pushing his ideology to intellectual elites and trying to get them to influence the Russian state. He's it's kind of similar to the strategy of the, yeah, it's kind of similar to the strategy of, like, the neoliberals, too. The way that they kind of just, like, form think tanks and even tried to, like, influence state policy and change, like, what was you know, considered, like, you know, politically acceptable in state policy. And so I feel like Dugan, you know, he sees Putin as a traditionalist who's standing against the decadence of the West. And so he wants to push Putin in like, a more far-right direction. And a lot of it has to do with, like, the anti-homosexuality stuff, I think. is That is a way for Putin to build national, like, identity by, like, saying, oh, well, we're not like the rest of the world because we don't tolerate that here. And so yeah, I can see the Duganism there. Yeah, going yeah. mean, back on the money. It's, it's correct. It's just he's not like actually leading this huge international like fascist conspiracy to destroy. Party, individual liberty, small government. Their right wing is fascism. Golden Dawn, Marine Le Pen, Pegida, any group pushing some sort of xenophobia will do. It's a dangerous play, one we have seen play out in history before with deadly consequences. Because once this sort of hate and fear is unleashed, there is absolutely no way to control it. Anyway. Good old Glenn back. <laughs> yeah. It's, and I, I hate to say it, but I think that there is a potential for that kind of red-brown alliance developing considering how so much like American anti-imperialism is nationalistic and I can, I can just see like so many of like the Frizzo and world workers parties and PSL people like being like, well, you know what, maybe we should be aligned with these people because we we're, we're anti-imperialist and anti-imperialism well, is the main contradiction today. I mean, haven't you read Dugan? You know, they, they basically like the parts of communism we like anyway. Yeah, you know, like then yeah, they just want self determination and to live there according to their own traditions and culture. They just uh, want to fucking I mean, live their design, you know. <laughs> maybe, I think you guys are like maybe giving like too much credit to the tankies. I guess, like, I don't think they're going to see the connections unless they actually start to look at them really 
And even then, they're going to want to try and put some distance between them and the fascists. Because yeah. their whole their whole shtick oh, is, oh yeah, we're anti-fascists. You should support us because we're opposing the evil races anti-fascists. So is, the whole... Sure, but, but the, what they're defending... What they're defending as anti-fascism is essentially fascism. Like, like this, that's the read that I get on like hard Stalinism. We end up in the authoritarian personality loop where, yeah, there is some horseshoe elements going on there. There is a weird think, kind yeah, of control there is, freakery. Like, there's this like, weird element where Stalinism becomes like so degenerated and like authoritarian that like, it starts resembling like traditionalist. Like look at of- look at somebody so. like Paul Cockshot. Paul Cockshot is, you know, a really interesting economic and, and computational theorist. And to call him a trans-exclusive feminist is wrong because he's not a feminist. He's a productivist Stalinist. He thinks feminism is is wrong. Like this, there's a extreme family resemblance between Stalinism and fascism. Oh, C.L.R. Yeah. James calls it out, and it's. You know, th- there are like left comms that are calling Bolshevism fascism for so long. And of course, there's the whole totalitarian tradition that just wants to collapse the differences. So I have a gut reaction level to doing that. But there, this really draws out that there really is something in common. And it, I'm, and it, and it, I, I, I mean, what it I is, don't is nationalism, you know? It's it's yeah. nationalism is where the common It's still a statist nationalism. It's just like, it's state. Yeah. It's like, well, Basically, Stalin was was the Russian Revolution equivalent of Bonaparte. Basically, he he took he took the revolution and corrupted it fully, like all the elements that were going in that that led that were weak, like sort of like some of the authoritarian movements of like Bolshevism, some of the authoritarian tendencies that came out, like as the revolution revolution went on stalin basically tapped into that and used it to his own advantage and eventually created this sort of productivist nationalist sort of state and you can see it in like many of the social policies that the ussr had like you saw it in the persecution of homosexuals in the in the whole doctor's plot situation where jews were kicked out of the party that sort of thing like this is this un, well under the guise of kicking out rootless cosmopolitanism which you know i think it just goes to show how, is, like any level of accommodation and nationalism can quickly become you know rootless cosmopolitan type bullshit you know more quick than you'll realize as well but how do yeah. how do we deal with people's groovy design without becoming anti-semites <laughs> i don't even know what that means but <laughs> no i don't know like people's no just just you know people's like weird you know 90s or 60s to 90s like sense of wanting just to be myself man or to like be you know unique in some capacity to want to have like nice fine artisanal coffee or some shit how to you know we're kind well, yeah, of trapped kind of in, in this question. weird time. <laughs> what national? Yeah, there's this weird time where we don't know who we are or what our purpose is. And nationalism is just like just such a simplistic but effective narrative because it gives you something to be involved in, and it gives it's, you someone to always root for. It's nationalism a given. Provides that answer of identity, 
and it's all defined for you. You don't need to think it out yourself. And so I feel like nationalism is going to be a powerful force in, in this today's political climate. And nationalism and, and potentially religion. And I think his comments on religion are very astute because it's kind of obvious if you know you're you're into any of these religions and they all have a translation of you know the evil satanic order and it's all kind of obvious what it is according to him you know it's it is that everyone is going to turn to globalist modernity in this undifferentiated sense of progressive social yeah. values and capitalist domination this well yeah is i only... think it's sorry Patrick. This this situation is only going to be intensified with global warming causing mass migration from like, the, you know, just countries, just like countries in the global south to the global north. Like they're going to be coming here and that's going to create tensions, well, racial and nationalistic tension, ethnic tensions that will just boil over as the standards of living just go down. Yeah, and these nationalists are just going to incite it and inflate it even more. But so, I think this <laughs> anti-liberalism that Dugan is is playing up in the end, I think it can easily be co-opted for pro-capitalist ends. Well, yeah, in the end, it is really just... Right. Well, it's a return to this sort of weird sort of like in-between capitalism and feudalism that was like the sort of Stalinist model of like command economy bullshit. Like that's what it is, really. It's it's the fucking stillborn of of Marxian socialism. Yeah, it's the overlap between like Stalinism and regular ass state led production with the aim of making capitalism. You know, yeah. instead of accidentally making capitalism. Whoops, we fell apart, now we're capitalists. Yeah. But the answer is the question, who we are, you know, that's always their argument, is who are you? What is your identity? You know, who are you becoming? Like, it's all this Heideggerian, like, questions of, like, being, you know, and the importance of identity, and how, like, you know, whites are just not allowed to have an identity anymore, and how identity should be, like, how we organize society. That's what I think of that. Do I think it's you, Dugan? So, uh, is that how we want to end it? That's it for this week. If you want to get a hold of us or send recommendations for future subjects for discussion or think different things that we should read, you can send emails to swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes or like our page on Facebook. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.